Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 to 13, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my recompense is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Wonderful promise. Your kids are actually learning about this this morning in Sunday school. This is our theme for Sunday school, and it touches very well on our theme for Joel chapter 3 this morning. Christ is coming back. Jesus Christ will return And what a day it is. We look forward to that day. If you go ahead and turn to Joel chapter 3, and we will be concluding this wonderful little prophet, this wonderful little book. Today, we've been in it. This is our fifth sermon in it, finishing it up today. And today, as we continue to build on the day of the Lord theme, today we arrive at the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ. For the Christian, this is a great and glorious day, a great and glorious day, a day that we long for. We cannot wait for this day to arrive, and we'll see why this morning in our text. But for the rebellious, for the unbeliever, this is an awful, terrible day, a day that they are hoping against hope will not happen, a day they're hoping will just not occur. And today's text is not for the faint in heart. We will see the wrath of God poured out. So brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. This is no laughing matter. There's a heavy aspect to this message. There's a heavy aspect to this message. It's a burden, honestly, for me to bring it to you. It's when I woke up this morning just kind of uneasy because it's not not a topic we like. Judgment is not a delightful topic. We'd rather hear of God's love and God's grace. Those are more palatable to us. They resonate much better on the taste buds of our heart. I get that. But we need to hear of the wrath of God from time to time, and we need to see it, see it in God's word from time to time. And why is this so important for us as Christians? Because he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. We learn this powerful concept at Camp Recon this summer with the youth, that he who is forgiven little loves little. It comes from Jesus' own mouth, Luke 7, 47. Friends, when we don't think that our sin is that big of a deal, when we don't think that our sin deserves that much punishment, we also won't love God that much. For we will naturally think less of what he has done on the cross. We will think less of the weight of Christ's death on our behalf. We will think less of God when we think less of our sin. Now, the opposite of Jesus' statement is also true. He who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven much loves much. If you feel the weight of all you've been forgiven, your love will grow exponentially. And so, friends, we must understand that the wrath of God was being stored up for sinners like yourselves, like you and me. God's wrath was being stored up for us. The punishment we will see in Joel 3 today is just a small taste of the eternal wrath of God that he will pour out on all sinners in hell. This wrath that we will see described is just an earthly depiction of the eternal wrath that was to be ours. Friends, our sins deserve 
this wrath. Even just one sin, just one sin against an eternal God deserves eternal punishment. He is an infinite being, and so when we sin against him, it is an infinite sin. Friends, each of us has committed cosmic treason, and we deserve damnation forever. But friends, this wrath is no longer yours if you are in Christ. That eternal wrath that you were due, God's cup of wrath that he was filling up for you, Jesus drank it all. Jesus drank it all. He went to the cross willingly to drink your cup of wrath. And because you are in Christ, friend, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And so as we witness the wrath of God poured out on the earth today, remember that this was your lot because of your sin. Remember that this and so what so much more was your doom. Remember that you've been forgiven so much. And may that drive you to love God so much the more. So on that premise, let's enter the day of the Lord. Let us see the return of our King and the wrath of God poured out on unbelievers. Our text this morning is 21 verses long, so we will read it as we come to each point. We'll start in Joel chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 to 8. Joel 3, 1 to 8. God's word says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. We'll pause there. Here we see point number one, the wrongs of the nations. If you've got your bulletin, there's a, 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 um, a sheet in there you can take notes that the outline's all there, the wrongs of the nations. It's amazing the sense of justice we humans have. Is it not... Just this past week, on Tuesday, the United States deported to Germany a 95-year-old former Nazi. He was believed to have worked in concentration camps in the Holocaust, and now he is in Germany awaiting charges there. Since 2013, over 100 people have been charged with being guards at Nazi death camps or concentration camps. But for the two decades prior to 2013, almost zero people were charged. 
So all of a sudden, there's this new vigor at charging people with this. Why this intensity? Why this recent intensity in prosecutions? Well, in 2013, there was a successful case against the Nazi concentration camp guard who was convicted guilty of murder by association with the camp. With this, it ended the need to prove explicit murder in the courts. And since then, many trials have arisen upon the few survivors who still live. And there is a problem there because there's not a single chargeable person still alive who is younger than 90 years old. They're all 90 or older. Time is running out for the courts and many feel that justice must be served in this life. There must be a recompense for these crimes. And so a desperate search has begun for those few still alive who have escaped justice for 70 years now. The resonating motivation is this. There must be justice. Now God has a a similar feeling on justice. In fact, God's the one who created us and ingrained that feeling in our hearts. And he will deal with each person according to their crimes, according to their sins. God's judgment on mankind is not senseless. It's not evil. Rather, it is the exact retribution and recompense for their wickedness. And in these opening eight verses, we have a number of wrongs committed by the nations of the world. A list of crimes committed against God's people. Now surely God's judgment is coming on the world for more than just the crimes listed here, much more than these, but these are representative of all crimes against God and God's people, and they are particularly tangible to Joel's audience as these are atrocities that Joel's people would have faced probably in their own lifetime. And so Joel begins this new section in verse, in verse 1 with the word behold. He's setting this apart, behold. And then he gives us a time marker, in those days and at that time. And so we again are signaled in by Joel that what we have here is the day of the Lord time frame. It's the same time that God will pour out his spirit on all Israel and save any Israelites who call upon him, as we saw last week in Joel 2, 28 to 32. And so Joel 3, 1 also notes that this is a time when Yahweh God will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And here they have a hint of hope for the whole nation, a hope that will be expanded upon later, starting in verse 16, that God will restore them in full. This is not the end of the Israelites. Rather, this is the beginning. This is their beginning. With verse 2, God inserts the key to the engine of judgment. He is entering the code, if you will, into his nuclear football and preparing to launch his final attack. Verse 2 begins, And I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now what's this Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat in the Hebrew literally means Yahweh judges. You can see Jeho at the beginning, part of Jehovah, and Shaphat, which is the Hebrew verb to judge. Yahweh judges judges. Now there is no valley near Jerusalem in Israel at all known by this name. It's possible that it's connected to the valley where King Jehoshaphat, there was a king of Israel named Jehoshaphat, where he won a great battle by the power of God, spoken of in 2 Chronicles 20. Great story. You should check it out one day. It's one of the uh, least known amazing stories of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 20. But more likely, this name is invented here for the sake of describing the event that would occur there. You see, it's the valley in which Yahweh will judge. 
And that's exactly what verse two says in the middle of the verse. It says, I will enter into judgment with them there. This depicts a case of governmental litigation. This statement about I will enter into judgment depicts a case of governmental litigation against the defendant. One commentator says that God as judge has issued subpoenas to the nations of the world. He is bringing them into his courtroom to bring justice. Why? What have they done? What have they done? Verse 2 gives a couple of reasons, a couple of their wrongs, a couple of their crimes. They have scattered my people among the nations, it says. They have divided up my land. Now, the scattering of God's people speaks to the multitude of deportations that Israel has faced and will face, or would face, rather. They were deported under Assyria, the northern ten tribes, under Babylon, the, the southern two tribes, to the Romans. They kicked them all out in the second century uh, A.D. Uh, they were not allowed to enter Jerusalem. We see, even think of the Nazis, how they scattered, maybe not from Israel, but from places in Europe. They scattered them all over. And even this day, though Israel once again dwells in their promised land, the majority of Jews are still scattered across the globe. Now, divided up my land speaks to the enemies of God trampling on his land and parceling out as if they owned it, as if it was their land. However, Israel is God's land. Really, the whole world is God's land, but Israel is his special land, and he's already parceled it out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the enemies will pay for such rebellion. Verse 3 adds to it, and it shows the people's utter moral depravity. Look at verse 3. They have, cast, they have also cast lots for my people. They have traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Inhumanity here is their crime. They treated people like property and like pawns in order to get their pleasure. The value of a life was nothing to them. Just, look, just a, a harlot, a night with a harlot, they would trade a boy for that. A new skin of wine or a new bottle of wine in our terms. They would trade a little girl for that. Unbelievable. Josephus, the Jewish war history in the first century, wrote about the Romans in the war against the Jews, that they, they would <clears throat> choose out of the Jews the tallest and most beautiful and reserve them for the triumph. As for the rest of the multitude that were about above 17 years old, they put them into bonds and sent them to the Egyptian mines. Those that were under 17 years of age were sold for slaves. God's people have been abused over and over and over again through the ages. We all know of, of what happened in World War II and many other stories. They've just been constantly abused and treated as nothing. But friends, such moral vices have not been limited to against the Jews. God sees all evil. God sees all wickedness and stores up wrath for it all. We see such brutal sin in our own country today, most poignantly in abortion, right? How Western nations have legalized and affirmed abortion for over 50 years now, trading the life of the unborn for a life of freedom and pleasure. If a woman's required to birth a child, they say she cannot work and that she cannot enjoy her work or the prosperity that comes from work. She can't live life how she wants if you force her to have her kid. And so America, just America alone, has aborted 60 million babies for the pursuit of economic gain and personal pleasure. 60 million abortions since 1973. We murder children here for our so-called freedom, for our pleasure. 
And so we see, we recognize quickly the nations of today are just as evil as the nations of biblical times. The wrongs of the nations today, just like the wrongs of those nations, are bringing the wrath of God upon them. Now, verses 4 to 8 forms a unique section, adding indictments against a specific region of people. These people lived along the Mediterranean Sea. They lived in the border cities, Philistia to the west and south, Tyre and Sidon up to the northwest. And here we have a list also of some of their specific sins against Israel. Now, as I've, in the previous months, as I've been reading and studying this book of Joel, I've often come to this section and I'm confused by it. I think, what is it doing here in the day of the Lord description? What, what is this? It's almost certainly not a part of the day of the Lord, this final day of the Lord. For one, it gives exact details of the historic nations and cities involved and their specific crimes committed. Secondly, the, God's retribution on them is so specific, and we don't see such actions detailed anywhere else in the day of the Lord. And, and surely the Jews will not be selling off the, uh, Tyre and the people from Tyre and Sidon to the Sabaeans when Christ returns. I can't imagine there would be any slave trade going on once Christ makes everything right. So what is this section? What is this? Well, it is, it is very, very likely a, one of those near mountain peaks to Joel's day, then to the day of the Lord, then to the Armageddon time. For one, this passage stands out in the text. It's clearly prose. It's written um, not as poetry in the, in the language. It's written more in just a, a straightforward form. The rest of Joel 3, the entire rest of Joel 3 is in poetic fashion. So perhaps Joel's tipping us off. There's something different here. And so like the locusts of Joel chapter 1, the current situation of Joel's day is probably being used as a platform from which to launch into the description of the end times. The current events of Joel's day with Tyre and Sidon and the regions of Philistia are being used as a platform to launch into the description of the end times. Commentator Richard Patterson puts it this way about this difficult paragraph. He says, These powers of Joel's day stood as representative of that great socio-religio-political system that would oppose God's people in a future day. Joel's prophecy, though intended for the eschatological situation, that is the end time situation, is also made historically applicable by being based on the current situation of his day. So this is for Joel's day and is launching us into the end times. And interestingly, the prophecies of verses 6 and 7 came painstakingly true for these people. It says the Greeks, uh, they sold them to the Greeks, and then verse 7, Behold, I'm going to arouse them, that is the Greeks, from the place where you've sold them and return your recompense on your head. This happened. Artaxerxes III captured and enslaved Sidon in 343 BC, and Alexander the Great followed up, capturing and enslaving Tyre down to Gaza in 332 BC. And so God's judgment was fulfilled on these nations in specific detail. And that only serves to confirm for us the detailed judgment that God will one day dish out on all the nations at Armageddon. Everything we see in Scripture Everything we see in scripture about the judgment of the day of the Lord will come to pass. And just this little section gives us a clear reminder of that. And now to bring about this worldwide judgment, God has to do what he said he would do back in verse two, gather all the nations. And we see this occur in our next point. Point number two, the rallying of the rebellious. The rallying of the rebellious. Let's read verses nine down to 15. 
verses 9 to 15 says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. We come now to this fascinating section where God calls all the nations to gather. And we'll move through this point pretty quickly to drive to the end when Christ returns. But let's see this here. First, in verse 9, we have this call going out, proclaim this among the nations. God's calling them to come up. And it's apparently this order is given out to his angels to go out and gather the peoples together. So the angels are going out and gathering them. But the people, the nations, will think rather that they're rallying around a cause. Right? They've got a cause. They need to come destroy Israel. Israel is the last enemy of their king, who is the Antichrist, their world ruler. They're coming to destroy Israel but in reality, actually being summoned by God. Verse 10 reveals their fanatical wartime mentality. They embraced an all-out war against Israel, they, so much so that they will take their tools and their metal instruments and fashion them into weapons. Things they would use for working in the farm have now become a weapon. And the scrap drives of World War II acted as a good preview to this event. Back then, all ordinary U.S. citizens were expected to bring any unused metal objects or unused rubber, rubber tires to scrap drives. And these would then be conducted throughout the U.S. to gather materials to build tanks, ships, planes, and weapons to help the war effort. Such a collection will occur again in preparation for this great battle when all the nations will come. More fanatics occur at the end of verse 10 when the weak man says, I am a mighty man. I am a mighty man. Those who normally would never think of enlisting in such a battle are jumping off their couch, out of their bed, saying, I'm strong, sign me up. The whole world gets caught up in the frenzy of this war cry with such a feeling of invincibility arising in their hearts when they come to fight Israel. They think we are, we've got... The, the ruler of this world on our side. We've got his prophet who can do amazing things. Our numbers are so great. Israel's so puny. We can, it's no piece of cake, piece of cake. And so they all gather together. Verse 11 says they're called to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Again, we mentioned that is the valley of judgment. And at the end of the verse, something interesting. It says, bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. In contrast to the coming up of the nations, we have bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. And this seems to be... <clears throat> Um, the army of the Lord, his angels coming to stand beside him. Typical of ancient armies, they would draw up lines for battle. They would face one another and the battle would be set. And so here we have God's angels and possibly even God's redeemed coming to stand with the Lord. And then verse 12 shows us God's response to this rebellious rally. God now responds. 
Here he declares that he will sit to judge these nations. He says, I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. This is the real purpose for coming. This is not a war, but a judgment. This is the greatest one-sided battle in history. This massive enemy force would not inflict even the smallest scratch or bruise on the Lord's army. This is not a fight, but a judgment. Now, verse 13, like a good professor explains his homework assignment a second time, verse 13 repeats to the angels their call to go and gather the nations. What we see here is this put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Sickles were not used to, um, to crush harvest, but to gather them. So what we have here is gathering. They were to gather them in, bring them to the wine, bring them to the wine press, to throw them into the vats, for, to make way, make ready for the treading out of the wine press that Jesus would do when he comes. And so the valley of Jehoshaphat, this valley of decision, is a giant wine press. The angels gather all the ripe grapes of the people of the earth, ripe with their wickedness, and Jesus Christ will come and crush them all. And this is depicted well in Revelation. Revelation 14, verses 18 through 20 says this. Listen to this. You'll hear this in very clear terms. An angel, Revelation 14, 18 to 20. And an angel called with a loud voice to another angel who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia or 200 miles. And so as both Joel and Revelation state, the harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. And so he uses figurative language here, which is explained at the end of the verse. Their wickedness is great. Their wickedness is great. They are ripe with wickedness. The nation's wickedness has become so bad, so unalterable, so unswerving, so magnitudinous that it's ripe for the picking. It's ripe for judgment. God's patience has been exhausted. And it's time for his wrath to pour out on the nations. And friends, we must remember that this is a well-deserved judgment. God is not being unfair in the least. Even in the seven years of tribulation, talked about in Revelation, there are given many signs and warnings to drive these people to repentance. But these people who come up for this battle, they've rejected them all. They are so deserving of this great wrath. Just consider Revelation 9, 20 to 21 says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Revelation 16.9 says, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. You see, every single plague was an opportunity for them to recognize God's rightful rule and to repent and turn to him, and yet they would not. And so we have, as verse 14 says, multitudes, multitudes are gathered in this valley called Yahweh Judges, in this valley also named here the Valley of Decision. God will make his decision. He will give his verdict and the nations are guilty. Very, very guilty. And verse 15 initiates that judgment. 
In preparation for Christ's arrival, like the dimming of a theater light before the show begins, the lights from the sky go out. The stage is set. The enemy is arrayed. And the Lord is poised to judge the world. And that's where we come to point three. The return of the king. The return of the king. Look with me as I read Verse 16 to the end of the book. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord dwells in Zion. We come back to verse 16. And let's put ourselves in the shoes of one of these rebellious soldiers for a moment. Let's get a a taste of, of this battle. The experience might be something like this. Might be something like this. It's 10 a.m., day one of the worldwide united attack against Israel. Soft breeze blows against the cloudless sky. You've got your gun in your hands, ready for battle in the dust-laden valley outside Jerusalem, surrounded by millions of soldiers and heavy equipment and artillery. You're tense and ready. You've traveled thousands of miles to be here. You're eager to be part of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel, the last enemy of this new world government. You've heard reports that the battle began on the city at daybreak. Part of the city has been captured. This attack is working. Victory is a sure thing, you know. It's just a matter of time, and you begin to realize you may not even get to use your gun. But as you're waiting your next order, the sky around you starts to darken. And you look up and notice the sun is dimming and losing its light. Your heart begins to beat urgently as the atmosphere gradually goes from morning light to blackest night, and there are no stars or moonshine now either. It's as if you've entered a giant closet, pitch black all around. Your invisible comrades to your left and right don't say a word. They're fear-stricken too. And then, all of a sudden, on a hill way up ahead of you, just east of the Temple Mount, a vibrant light bursts onto the scene against the blackened sky, flooding the entire valley with light and casting long shadows. The sky above is dancing with rays of the purest white light you've ever seen. You look closely at its source and it appears to be coming from a single human being up on a hill. And then a loud voice breaks the silence, so loud that your ears bleed in pain as you reach to cover them. Then a massive earthquake of Richter scale breaking proportions rocks the earth and knocks you and everyone around you to your hands and knees. Now let's pause for a moment in this dramatization. Joel 3.16 begins, the Lord roars from Zion. First, notice who's arrived. 
Notice who's here. It's the Lord. The Lord has returned. This is Yahweh God. It's in all capital letters. This is Yahweh God. And this is Jesus. Our king has returned. And friends, he will return and touch down with a roar. The Hebrew word roar is used for lions and the terrifying roar they make. Here we have the lion of Judah stepping down from heaven onto the Mount of Olives just east of the Temple Mount. This is quite the event, friends. This is the return of our king. This is the second coming of Christ. This is the moment that you and I long for happening. We eagerly await for Jesus to return. While it's a day of blessing for us, for those enemies arrayed in battle, not so much, not at all. Now, other prophecies in Scripture give us much more detail than Joel. Joel zeroes in on the sight, excuse me, not the sight of Jesus, but the sound of Jesus. He zeroes in on the sound of Jesus. And that's interesting. Why focus on the sound that is made? Well, friends, it's because it's quite overwhelming. This voice of Christ is just overwhelming. The apostle John, he had a vision in Revelation chapter one, and he described the voice of Jesus twice. First in Revelation 1.10, he said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Again, in 1.15, he said, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, in John's day, before the invention of stereo speakers and jet engines, there was nothing louder than a trumpet blast in your ear, waves pounding upon a rock, huge waves upon a rock. Perhaps think of an air horn going off unexpectedly in the pew behind you. And that might help you get the startling nature of the voice of Jesus. And what we have at Jesus' second coming is no air horn, but a lion's roar. The Lion of Judah has come to conquer his enemies and make all things new. Verse 16 also tells us that at such a voice, the heavens and the earth tremble. Notice here what some other scriptures tell us about the moment of Jesus' return. Zechariah 14.4 tells us, In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Ezekiel 38, 19-20 says, In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. The Lion of Judah returns and this is just the beginning of his great judgment. Now Joel, surprisingly, does not actually detail out for us the wrath of God. In verses 9 to 15, as we saw, we get all the nations gathering together for God's wrath. And the next time we see the wrath of God, it's in verse 19, which speaks of the aftermath of God's wrath. That the judgment actually took place, Joel confirms by speaking of it in verse 19. And he speaks of Egypt and Edom. They're spoken of as representatives of all the enemies of Israel, referenced because of their continual evil acts towards God's people throughout time. Now, Joel doesn't focus on the details of God's wrath, but many other prophets do. Here's what it might feel like in real time if you were part of that army, that enemy army. You're on the shaking ground. 
Your ears are ringing. Your heart is pounding as you look back up at the brilliantly lit figure on the hill. The light is not on him. He is the light. You try to stand back up as the earth continues to quake. Rain begins to pound the valley from a cloudless sky, plinking loudly off your helmets. Out of nowhere and without warning, the tank on your left explodes as something whistles from the sky and makes a direct hit. You look up and see a shower of thousands of giant rock-like objects raining down and begin striking all over the valley, each a direct hit to the heavy equipment and artillery. It's not an Israeli bombardment, you realize. It's gigantic hailstones thrown by God. The man on your right suddenly collapses. You grab his arm to help him back up, but his skin peels off in your hands. He looks at you in horror as his eyes and tongue shrivel and rot out of his face. Aghast, your gaze is forced up to see the battalion in front of you spontaneously combust into a giant fireball. Flames fly out and lick at fellow soldiers. Now charging at you in sheer panic are your own army men with their clothes on fire, guns blazing as they mow down their own countrymen seeking escape. The continuing earthquake knocks you back to the ground again as allied bullets fly where your head just was. What do you do? You crawl into a ditch and you beg God for the earth to swallow you whole, crying out, hide me from his presence and from the wrath of the Lamb. And in such fashion, millions upon millions of soldiers will be decimated in a brief time when Jesus returns and pours his wrath on the nations. I didn't make that up. Simply listen to these prophets spell out Yahweh's destruction when the Lion of Judah returns and roars from Jerusalem. Zephaniah 3.8 says, For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Isaiah 66, 16, For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Zechariah 14, 12 to 13, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Ezekiel 39, 3-5, I will strike your bow from your left hand, God says, and I will make your arrow drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey and every sort to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. Isaiah 30, 30, and the Lord will cause his voice of authority his voice of authority to be heard and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger and in the flame of a consuming fire in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. And finally, the climatic Revelation 19, 11 to 21. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, and I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest, the rest of the army, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's gruesome. It's nauseating. It's ghastly. And it's severe. The wrath of God poured out. What have we just seen? This is total destruction from every angle. They all died by the sword of the Lord's mouth. Jesus commands with his mouth that they be destroyed, and it happens. The sword is the physical manifestation of his voice. Just think of the panic of such an attack. No war movie can capture such panic, such bloodshed. Not Saving Private Ryan with the D-Day attack on Normandy. Not Hacksaw Ridge with the bloody battle of Okinawa. None. This is unparalleled destruction and bloodletting. But friends, the enemies of God won't simply die and be annihilated from existence. No, they deserve worse, and they'll get worse. They'll spend eternity in hell. God's wrath will continue on them forever. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 25, 41. When speaking of this period of history, this day of the Lord, he says, then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9, Paul speaks of both the wrathful judgments of the earthly judgment and the eternal judgment, one after the other. Listen to Paul, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. He says, with flaming fire, he will mete out punishment on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. The horror of the wrath of God Friends, God is not unjust. We all deserve this. We all deserve this. Every sinner deserves this wrath. Every sin is committed against an infinite God deserving of infinite punishment. And if you've never turned to the Savior, if you've never repented and trusted in Him for salvation, you are still dead in your sins. The wrath of God hangs above you as if on a thread. This wrath will one day burst over your life and plunge you into eternal misery. Oh, dear friend, repent 
and believe before it's too late. Do not play games with your soul. Give your life to Christ, even this moment, and you will still be saved. Friends, if you do that, you will join us here who are the family of Christ, who are in Christ. For all of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus, such wrath is not ours to endure. Jesus took the wrath for us. Some 2,000 years ago, this same man, this same man who will return with a roar, stood between you and God the Father and said, not on this one. Don't pour your wrath out on this precious child. I will take their wrath instead. And Jesus drank the cup of wrath that you deserved. Jesus drank it all. By his blood, by his death, you've escaped. You've been delivered. You've been saved. Friend, you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven. And there's a great and awesome reward waiting for all who have escaped God's wrath and trust in Jesus. Not only are we saved from wrath, not only are our sins forgiven in God's mercy, but in God's grace we are blessed and will rejoice throughout eternity. Jesus' own words speak to his return on earth and he's not reveling in the wrath he's going to pour out, rather in the redemption that he will bring. Jesus says in Luke 21, 27, and 28, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus focuses on the redemption of his own and so does Joel. Let's see how he finishes out the text. Look back in the middle of verse 16. Look there, back in Joel 3.16, right in the middle. Instead of depicting the great judgment upon the nations, Joel focuses on what will occur for God's people. Middle of verse 16, he says, the Lord is a refuge for his people. The Lord is a stronghold to the sons of Israel. In the day of God's wrath, poured out on earth at Armageddon, those who are in Christ, those Israelites in Christ will be protected, delivered from destruction. Jesus, Yahweh God, will be a refuge for his people. And friends, if he can be, if he is powerful enough to be a refuge in the bloodiest hour of human history, then he is surely a refuge to you now in whatever you're going through, in whatever you face Psalm 46, read earlier, declares, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Friends, there is comfort even today in this glorious promise. But in that day, the day of the Lord, Jesus will be more than just a refuge to his Israelite brothers. He will also become their next door neighbor. Verse 17 says, Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Jesus will dwell with his people. He'll dwell with his people. 
And because of that, the city will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more, the verse says, meaning no foreigners with evil hearts will be allowed entry. But then there's even more blessing. Look at verse 18. It adds, in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. All the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. And it's here that the blessings of having Jesus on his throne in Jerusalem are fully revealed. This will happen in that day, the day of Yahweh's dwelling with man. Mountains and hills, it says. Ordinarily, mountains and hills, they're the least productive of all land. And that day, even the wasted spaces will be producing bountifully. All the brooks that normally carry water in Jerusalem, they only carry water during the winter rains, only for a short season of the year. And yet here, they will run continually. Isaiah 30, 25 tells us on every lofty mountain and under every high hill, and on every high hill, there will be streams of running water on the day of that great slaughter. And most amazing of all, a river will spring forth from Jerusalem at this time and water the land. Zechariah 14, 8 states this as well, saying, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter, year-round, This is perhaps a precursor to the river of the water of life spoken of in Revelation 22 that will flow out of Jerusalem for eternity. Or it's even possible that it's the exact same thing. Apostle John in Revelation 22 sees this vision of the eternal state and sees this river, but perhaps this river actually opens up in the millennium and starts flowing when Christ returns. Whatever the case on this river of life, it's abundantly clear that when Christ comes back, Jerusalem will be overflowing with bounty, Israel overflowing with produce and food, and God's people overflowing with blessing from God Most High. And just as it is in Jerusalem and Israel, friends, it will be in our hearts. It will be in our hearts as we enter into the joy of Jesus Christ. Friends, when Christ returns, so will the raptured saints. We being raptured at the start of the tribulation, we will return to Christ. We will inherit the earth. We will reign with Jesus forever. That's another message for another time, but it's a true statement. We will reign with Christ forever active partakers in these promised blessings. Friends, in this text, we see the tenacity of God's wrath, but also the tenacity of God's love. It all gushes forth on this final day. It all comes out on this final day. Now, just finishing the text, Joel 3.19, as we mentioned, confirms the destruction of the enemy. Joel 3.20 speaks of the promise that Israel and Jerusalem will be inhabited forever. And Joel 3.21 ends the chapter with the greatest blessings of all blessings, the greatest promise of all promises, the whole purpose of God's day of the Lord. It is so that the Lord will dwell in Zion. The Lord dwells with man. This is the whole point. The Lord will dwell with his people forever. All the other blessings are amazing. They're incredible. And they are infinitely praiseworthy. But the greatest blessing of all is that God's dwelling place will be with us. Verse 17 declares it. Verse 21 reaffirms it. This is the ultimate blessing for God's chosen people, both for elect Israel and for all of us Gentiles who repent and believe. Christ will live with us. This is how Joel concludes on this note of hope. And so we've reached the end of this wonderful little book. Let's step back for a moment. 
You may never again in your lifetime hear a sermon out of the book of Joel, out of this little prophet. So let's not miss the point of this short three-chapter book. First of all, can you imagine the peace this message would bring to a people devastated by a locust plague? To a people constantly threatened by the attack of neighboring nations coming off and, and taking them as slaves? Remember the starvation they were facing and the reproach Joel's people currently had right now. Not only would God heal their land very soon, Joel tells them, but he will one day remove all their enemies, give them a prosperous land forever, and God himself will personally dwell with them and reign as their king. What an impetus, what a motivation for the people of, God, of Joel's day to both repent of their sin and to praise God for his goodness. I believe a revival must have broken out if they imbibed this letter wholly, if they truly believe what Joel is saying, and nothing short of a revival must have come forth in the people's hearts. And friends, may our response be the same to this letter. May we first repent and forsake all sin in our lives, knowing that judgment and wrath is coming upon sin, both in this world and forever in hell. And then, seeing the salvation of the Lord in us and the blessings we get to enjoy with Israel, let us worship and praise our great and awesome God. Let that be our hearts. Friends, we have been forgiven so much by the blood of Jesus let us love our God and Savior so much more. So I ask, what ounce of your life are you holding back? What petty idols will your heart not let go of? Friends, for the sake of Jesus Christ, abandon all sin, abandon all worldly hopes, abandon all carnal dreams, and run to the Savior. Run to him. Give your everything to him. Worship him. In light of Joel's message, no corner of our lives should remain hidden and unconfessed. No area of our lives should be undevoted to our Savior. He is worthy of all our worship, of all our thoughts, of all our time, of all our resources. We have escaped the wrath of God because he poured it out on his son. Friends, we've been forgiven much. So let us go and love much. Let's pray. Precious God, your word speaks to us. We grieve for those who are lost, who do not know you, who will suffer this wrath. God, put it on our hearts even this day to go and be ambassadors for you, reconcilers, that they may not face this wrath as well. God, we're so thankful that you've called us out to walk in marvelous light, to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb, the lamb who was slain, who's coming back as the lion of Judah. God, we're so grateful. May our hearts just be enthralled with you and all you've done for us and all you will do for us. God, may we praise you and worship you with our whole being forevermore. It's in your precious name we commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.